Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Torah Chaim podcast. My name is Alchanan Cohen, and this is my wife, Miriam Cohen. And this is the Torah Chaim podcast. And as we try weekly on this podcast, we examine the Torah portion of that particular week, this week being Parshas Yisro, to see if we can extract meaningful life lessons from the Torah portion. That is the idea of Torah Chaim being instructions for living. And as well, we try and apply some of what we experience in our own life to get a deeper understanding of the text. So, Parshas Yisro, hopefully this time we'll actually get more than one or two psukim in. Can I, uh, speaking of only one or two psukim, can I interject to say that if you enjoy the podcast, which I hope you do if you're listening, um, we would really appreciate it if you would help us spread the word. You can uh, talk about it at your Shabbos table. It's a very appropriate place to discuss the Parsha. Um, You can post it on our WhatsApp chat or on whatever social media you use. You can uh, leave a review or a rating on your preferred podcast app. Uh, We appreciate all of it. We also love to hear from our listeners. Um, You can reach us at um well i'm on instagram at overtime cook and my husband is at instagram is on instagram at Achanan? yes spelled okay. e-l-c-h-o-n-o-n the easy way um <laughs> yeah that tells you how much i i focus on instagram um I, don't worry she's training me well um so anyhow Moving right along. Okay. Vayishma Yisro Kohen Midian. And so Yisro, the Kohen of Midian, I'm going to leave the word Kohen deliberately untranslated for just a moment. Okay. Heard Chosein Moshe, this is the father-in-law of Moshe, Eis kol asa Elohim Moshe, everything that God had performed for Moshe, Uli Yisrael Amo, and his nation Israel, Kiyotzi Hashem, Es Israel Mimitzrayim, that God had taken the Jewish people out of Egypt. Lots of questions to unpack just here in this first verse. Okay. Question number one: What did Israel hear? Are you asking me? I'm asking. Um, I thought I was always taught that he heard about the splitting of the sea. Okay. Which was a, I mean, you could imagine that would kind of make national, uh, international news headlines. Mm-hmm. Is that okay. not what he heard? Uh, sure. Um, that is the Mechilta, that is the Medrash's approach. Um, I mean, you should have just answered me what it says in the verse, though. It says he heard everything that God had done for Moshe and for the people Israel. That Hashem had taken them out of Egypt. Well, I thought you were asking specifically. Yes, but Rashi does quote the Medrash, which says, actually, interestingly, two things that Yisro heard. Kriyas Yamsuf, the splitting of the sea, Umochemes Amalek, and the war with Amalek. Now, before we take a deeper look into that, to understand why would they address the war with Amalek. I mean, 
that's not what it seems to be discussing in the in the verse. It seems to be discussing leaving Egypt. Well, <clears throat> just take a look at the very end of last week's parsha, and we have at the very end of last week's parsha, Vayavo Amalek, Amalek came. So the juxtaposition would suggest that Yisro heard about whatever was previously being discussed. Okay. Meaning the war with Amalek. <clears throat> uh, in fact, many of the Rishonim, including the Ramban, discuss the question of whether Yisro came before the giving of the Torah or after the giving of the Torah. Chronologically, meaning in terms of the text, it would seem to imply that Yisro comes before the giving of the Torah. Later on in this week's Parsha, we will have the giving of the Torah on Har Sinai, on Mount Sinai, but Yisro seems to appear before that. However, there are numerous questions on that, including the discussion that Yisro has with Moshe shortly about the people coming for judgment or coming to learn. Well, if the Torah was not yet given, what exactly were they coming to learn? Were there, was there no concept of learning Torah in whatever form? I mean, obviously we know that Yaakov Avinu learned in Yeshiva Shem Ever for 14 years, right? Mm -hmm. So... Was it exclusive to like the Avos? The, what the the rest of the Jews weren't. Um... So, the Ramban actually focuses on the words used later, "Chuke Ha'Elokim Vitorosav," which means the uh, precepts of God and His instructions, which would imply an actual Torah rather than just whatever wisdom it was that was being studied before. Okay. But that would be an approach. And actually, if you look in the text. Um, Moshe says two things. First of all, he says that the people come lidrosh es halohim. They are coming seeking God, which doesn't necessarily mean one specific text that they're coming to study. And also, he says that they come that they come when there is a disagreement between people, and v'shafati benishuvein I judge adjudicate between them, which. That can also exist before the giving of the Torah. I mean, take 600,000 men between the ages of 20 and 60, okay? Multiply that by at least three, right? Because you have equally the same number of women plus equally the same number of children, right? Um, and you already have 1.2 million, right? Did I get that? No, sorry. You would have 1.8 million people. So right? you're not expecting me to do math. <laughs> you would have 1.8 million people just in in that very, very underestimated population count, right? Okay. And anytime you have 1.8 million people together, you can guarantee there are going to be issues between people. <laughs> do you it's, think? <laughs> it's just part of part of the nature of the beast. Right. Um, however, Ramban and others are of the opinion that actually Yisro came later. Yisro actually only came after the giving of Matan Torah. Um, they also base this on the Midrash understanding that Yisro sees Moshe post Matan Torah. That's how the Midrash understands that whole uh, uh, interaction. Uh, others understand that you know the Torah is chronological, which actually 
It's worth mentioning at this point, there is a concept called Ein Mukdam Umauchar Batora, that there is no, literally, there is no before and after in the Torah, but meaning that the Torah is not in chronological order. That's usually how it's explained. That's not a very accurate way of describing the principle. The principle means, obviously, the Torah does follow some form of chronology, right? We don't start at the end of the story. Right. What it means is that you cannot assume chronology based on the order that the Torah provides it. Right. Um, either way, whether Yisro came before or after, right, the Torah finds it necessary to tell us about his having arrived before telling us the story of the giving of the Torah. Which means the Torah in some way is telling us that if you want to properly prepare for the giving of the Torah, you have to understand the story of Yisro. Whether chronologically it happened before or after, understanding that story will be a, an appropriate preparation for understanding the story of the giving of the Torah, which we'll have to examine and understand what in Yisro's story is such a good preparation. Though I think it should very readily be apparent to us that we do something very similar on the actual holiday of Shavuos, which celebrates the giving of the Torah. What do I mean? Well, whose story do we read on Shavuos? Rus. The Gioras, the convert, right? So obviously the concept of conversion, whether it's in the form of Rus or in the form of Yisro, and you'll notice that their names are actually very similar. They're really just a rearrangement of letters, right? Interesting. Um, which the Balhatur makes note of, you know, the idea that they're accepting a certain number of additional mitzvahs to what they had, right? So there are 613 mitzvahs, Taryag, and Rus has, um, Rus has the numerical value of 606, difference being seven, difference here, math, that's subtraction, right? So the difference being seven. Are you making fun of your no, wife? No, <laughs> I'm making fun of my students. No, I'm not making fun of my students. I'm just... It's better to make fun you know, of your wife, I think. No, I think I'm just in, in you know, in teaching mode still. Okay. You know, so I was discussing different mathematical operations with students today and how to know... Sounds boring. Which, exactly. <laughs> how to know which one a word problem is asking you to do everyone's favorite, you know, yeah. thing. And uh, so... I struggled a lot with that in eighth grade. What I can I say? Or ninth. 10th grade? I don't know. I just specifically remember struggling with those. Um, Shame I didn't have you as a teacher. I guess. Uh, <laughs> though I probably would not have been a very good teacher at the time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Considering you're younger than yes. me. <laughs> um, so, so she added 606 mitzvahs in addition to the seven mitzvahs bidi noach that she had, right? There are seven mitzvahs that all people have. We happen to refer to them as B'nai Noach and not B'nai Adam, but that's a different discussion, perhaps because the final of those mitzvahs is given to Noach. Okay. Um, but either way, she added that number to the number right. that she had before for a total of 613. But what about the extra Yud in, in Yisro? In Yisro. So um, the Balaturim actually brings from his father, 
Uh, by the way, do you know who the Balaturim's father was? No. Uh, none other than the Rush, Rabinu Asher. Um, but he I brings from his that. father that um, he came to receive the Ten Commandments and Taf Resh Vav, which is the same letters as oh, Rush. Um, either way, clearly the concept of conversion is a very important component to the concept of receiving the Torah. Can I um, ask a question about this? Of course. Um, I, I can't remember like if I've learned either way, but was the story of Yisro so noteworthy because he was the only one with all those miracles that God did that he was the only one who said, oh, hey, I want to come join this nation? Well, he wasn't, the, that- he wasn't the only one in the sense that we're told that when B'nai Yisrael and the Jewish people left Egypt, there was also the Erev Rav, the mixed multitude, who, right. who are essentially people who are coming to convert, even well, if it may be for a very different reason. Right, but I mean... Like after the splitting of the sea and all, and the leaving Egypt and all that, like it's like big, big miracles and and like was he the only one who said, "Oh, hey, I I, I believe in that God." All of a sudden, like as far as we know, yes, Yisro wow. is the lone figure. Wow, uh, in that regard, um, it's also worth noting there is another very important biblical figure similar to Yisro, though somewhat different. Uh, Rachav. So when you get to the beginning of Sefer Yehoshua, you meet Rachav. Not our discussion right now. <laughs> I was going to say we're going to we're going to have to start a Navi series at some point. You know? um, but you meet Rachav, who actually interestingly speaks about. Oh, I heard about this Kriyas Yamsov thing. Oh. Right. So obviously Kriyas Yamsov had a uniquely powerful impact um, on people. Right. Also, not our discussion. Okay, um, can we, go back to maybe when we talk uh, when we get to Pesach time and we start talking a little bit about Shvishel Pesach that we did mention it in, right. in last week's parsha a little bit. I I do have another question about Israel, but I'm gonna wait and see if it gets answered with okay. what you were saying about why uh, converts are are integral to well accepting the Torah. I think the idea is somewhat self evident. Um, for example, we know that all of the halachos of Geros, of how conversion happened, happens in Halakha, are learned from Matan Torah, from the giving of the Torah. So the idea of Tevila, that a ger goes to the mikvah, the idea of Brismila, that a ger requires circumcision, right, etc. Those are learned from Matan Torah. So Matan Torah is really the first conversion, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's a national conversion rather right, than an right. individual conversion, but it's really the first conversion. That's number one, but there's a whole nother component here, which maybe we'll we'll have the opportunity to discuss a little bit, the idea of the outsider perspective and how okay. sometimes it takes someone from the outside for us to appreciate what it is that we have, right, well, their comment. But not, not, not uh, maybe we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit. What I do want to talk about right okay. now is Rashi's comment that Yisro heard about Kriyas Yamsuf, the splitting of the sea, and Mohammed Amalek and the war of Amalek. Now, I understand why hearing about the splitting of the sea would be a motivator for Yisro, what the verse is about to say, him coming to join the Jewish people, right? I mean, that's pretty awesome. The war with Amalek, like how, why is that so significant, right? I mean, it doesn't seem to be a 
particularly miraculous war, if we take a look at last week's Parsha, right? Moshe assigns Yoshua, go take a bunch of men, attack, you know, go to war with Hamalek, they fight. Sure, Moshe has his hands raised, and so long as his hands are up, they're winning, and when they're down, they're not winning. But it doesn't seem to be a uniquely miraculous war. I mean, like, I would understand, let's say, the war with Yericho, right? The story of Jericho, again, say for Yoshua, right? Where the walls miraculously come tumbling down. Send him Instagram messages if you want to learn about Navi. <laughs> um, where the walls come t- mar- miraculously tum- tumbling down. I understand, right? right? That, you know, right. miraculous, right? And we have a, num- a number of those in, say, for Yoshua, right? But doesn't seem to be anything particularly miraculous about the War of Amalek. I- I'd like to share with you an idea that I heard um, not directly from uh, Rabbi Yaakov Weinberg, but actually from one of his children in his name, that I think is, is a very, very powerful idea. And that is, oftentimes in life, we, uh, we experience, um, we experience situations that have the potential to transform us, inspiring situations, right? Mm-hmm. And we have one of two choices with what we do with that situation. We can either take that inspiration and capitalize on it, right? or inevitably what happens is we find some way to minimize whatever it is that happened. Because the nature of cognitive dissonance, the nature of the human mind is that we can't accept that there is something that should be inspiring us, but is not. So the only way we can deal with that is either be inspired or, well, it's not inspiring. And what the War of Amalek showed Yisro was the other approach. Because what happens, Amalek hears about the Jews leaving Egypt, Kriyas Yamsov, and what is their knee-jerk reaction? Not, oh, wow, that's amazing. It's, oh, let's go attack them and show the world how they're just like anybody else. Right. Wow. Right? And so Yisro understood that if he doesn't capitalize on this inspiration that he feels in hearing about the Jews leaving Egypt, his human nature is going to be such that he's going to downplay it because he sees that that's exactly that's what Amalek did. So it's not so much that he heard about the miracles that happened with Amalek as much as he heard about Amalek's reaction. Wow. And that told him, wow. gave him direction for what he needs to do in life. And fascinatingly, there's a very similar insight in the book of Rus. The whole story of, right, Rus has her sister Orpah. Right, right. right? And we talked about this when we were learning Rus yeah. before Shavuos. He, she has her sister Orpah who fails, so to speak, right. to follow through and join. And, and she goes all She ends the up other going way. exactly precisely in the other way. Right. Wow. One way that that I've heard this described very well is, you know, the most avid anti-smokers are ex-smokers. Right. I think that applies to. to it applies other to tons also. of things. Right. Um, Ex-Mormons are. <laughs> right. Well, okay. That there's kind of you know there's there's baggage there. Right. Right. right that's true. Um. You know, but you know, it's those people who have gotten out 
right? right. Who feel like it's right. so and necessary. You, to- you told me this about Re- about Arpa, right? That she felt like, oh, she came so close to being there, but like, oh, she escaped. She the, escaped that, that, life. that cult, right? <laughs> that life. Anyhow, um, so that that would be, uh, I think, an approach to understanding what it is that um, Rashi is trying to tell wow. us. It's fa- what's also fascinating is the fact that Yisro is introduced very much in the beginning of this week's Parsha, not as his own individual person, but as related to Moshe. So you'll see as we come in the coming verses, he says, Yisro took Tzipora. Who's Tzipora? Moshe's Moshe's wife. wife. And he took Moshe's two sons. And he comes to Moshe in the desert. There's very much a focus on Moshe, in the beginning of this of this week's parsha, and and I think that that's deliberate as well. Um, you find something similar again in the book of Rus, right? That Rus kind of there's almost this um, cult of personality that Rus develops towards Naami, right? Um, and I think that one of the things that this tells us about the nature of receiving the Torah and about the nature of conversion in general, um, is that oftentimes people are the cause in our life for our being so impressed with valuable things. What do I mean? You know, it's the concept that's oftentimes thrown around of Kiddush Hashem, right? You know, so, you know, people... One thing you'll hear if you if you speak or if you read the stories of people who converted is they seem to be particularly impressed with the behavior of Jews. It's not necessarily a philosophical pursuit, right? It's not like they're going and searching and trying to figure out, you know, what is the right answer to the questions of life. But rather, they see something in Judaism that they value, and that is what attracts them to it, right? So whether it's, you know, the beauty of a Shabbos table, right? They somehow end up at a a Shabbos table, and they're enamored with that. Or the beauty of a Jewish wedding, which, by the way, for those of us who grew up, you know, Orthodox from from birth and have never experienced a non-Jewish wedding— it is so profoundly different. Um, we take so for granted the nature of a Jewish wedding and the beauty of a Jewish wedding. Right. I mean, um, I've never been to a non-Jewish wedding, but, you know, I read these, like, stupid things on Reddit and whatnot. <laughs> and, like, I, I read about, like, these stories of people getting, like, so drunk that, like, the whole wedding is, like, rolling around on the floor, like, ridiculousness. And I'm like, I, I mean... I don't know, maybe at church weddings people also get drunk, but I don't think to that level. And sure. Yeah. There's, there's, the, a significant, there's a significance to the wedding that prevents it from being just a, a party about how drunk you can get. I think that's the most imp- most significant difference, is I think that weddings in the world at large are a party. It's not per se about the celebration of the couple. It's They're just there as an excuse, sort of. Right? right, and for them it may be you know about about that, but for everyone else is there. Oftentimes, it's it's really about the party component, 
right? right? And I think that that is a significant difference to a Jewish wedding, is there is a very clear focus on what we call simchas chasan vekala, right? bringing joy to the bride and groom, and, and how that is so much the focus of the wedding. Um, and I think that that also contributes to, you know, some of both some of the difficult, but also positive feelings. You know, I know that for many people, right, um, you know, talking about getting drunk at weddings, right? I think a lot of people who in their own life are having a difficult time, they're the people who are going to be getting drunk at weddings because it's so difficult right. to experience your own difficulty while still sharing in the joy or not right. while still, but to share in the joy of others while still experiencing your difficulty. Right. You know? And I think um, you know, that, that, that contributes to, to some of that difficulty. But <clears throat> so this idea that oftentimes what attracts people to Judaism is not necessarily um, you know, a, a, some sort of, of deep intellectual exercise right but rather you know a a emotional connection is i think one of the ideas that we're being told um you know and and this is true by the way not only in terms of conversion but also in terms of kirov you know people who are disconnected from judaism in one way or another you know um whether they were connected and became disconnected or whether they were never connected in the first place oftentimes what brings those people back is not necessarily, you know, a what, discovery seminar. Right. You what, know? what did Rav Noah Weinberg say, or was it Rav Noah Weinberg who said something about like a Shabbos table, like, or maybe it was just your father? Could be. Um, Do you know but, what I'm talking about? There's some line about how more people become from, from like a Shabbos meal than a... Right. In fact, uh, without getting into the, the halachic... Um, intricacies of this this is part of the whole discussion of you know inviting um non-religious people to your shabbos table on shabbos if you know that they're going to drive right and one of the reasons this this i believe was uh, rabbi yakov weinberg's response to that shila was that you never know what impact your shabbos table is going to have on that person and so the hope is that this is what is going to bring them no longer to drive on Shabbos. Um, Obviously, you're not telling people that it's okay to to do that. Obviously. To drive on Shabbos? No, no, to invite people. You, you're saying discuss it with your Rav, but this yeah. is yes. his approach. That's what I said. I'm not getting into the halachic intricacies of it. And, <laughs> Just giving a little disclaimer um, for the, just in case. The, the interesting thing is I actually was approached, funny enough, at um at a bris that we were at two weeks ago okay someone approached me asking this shyla um someone from lakewood approached yeah. me asking okay. this shyla could he invite someone to his shabbos table if they're going to drive um which is why i mentioned before you know there are all sorts of different kinds of people who are distant from Judaism. Not right. all of them are people who were distant from Judaism in the first place. Some right. of them are people who grew up with it and were, you know, distanced in one way or another from right. it. Right. 
it's a discussion that uh, my my father actually had with Rabbi Noah Hoenberg um, a number of years ago, and um, I think the Kirov world, and we're getting way off topic <laughs> yeah, here, I but that. I think the the nature of the Kirov world has changed significantly in the last twenty or thirty years. I think it was true in the sixties and seventies, maybe that people were searching. Right. Um, you know, I think that was kind of the, the nature of the counterculture um, atmosphere of the 60s, right. was that people were searching. And, and so Rabbi Noah Weinberg was a very big fan of, of proofs of Judaism. Right. Um, he, he believed that this was fundamental to being a Jew, independent of whether, you know, you were doing cure of or not. His understanding of the mitzvah of of Yidiyas Hashem, the first mitzvah that the Rambam mentions, to know that there is a God, his understanding of that mitzvah was that it's not about believing in God, it's about knowing through proof. Not our discussion right now, um, though fascinatingly, one of the most well-publicized proofs is this week's Parsha, is the whole concept of national revelation, right? Right. right? And the idea that, you know, how do you um, counterfeit or how do you falsify something with which is supposed to have happened in front of so many people? Right, right. Um, Lawrence Kellerman, Rabbi Kellerman, um, wrote a whole book on that, Permission to Believe. Um, permission. Uh, that one's more permission to receive, actually. Um, but I, th- I think... That is no longer the case. Right. I think it's it's very rare that you find people who are searching for truth. I think people are searching for meaning. Connection? Connection. Very much so. Right. right? And so I, I think as a result, the nature of Kirov also kind of needs to, not that it hasn't, change um you know and what brings people in is more a shabbos table you know and you know the fastest way to a man's heart is through his stomach right um and good cooking you know um is very much a part of that so yeah um ask me how i hooked him in (laughs) (laughs) um so uh to get back to our our Parsha. Um, Rashi, of course, points out, you notice in the Pasuk, Ace Kalasher Asa Elohim Limoshe Uli Yisrael Amo, everything that God had done for Moshe and Kal Yisrael, which is this idea that we're talking about, this stress of Moshe. Actually, let's let's uh, take another uh, trip down, not memory lane, but another lane. You know, I have the honor of studying with your father. Uh, on a weekly basis. And we're actually learning. We just learned this last time um, in the Gemara in Masefa Shabbos that discusses um, the people who came to convert and who approached two of the greatest sages of all times, Shammai and Hillel, right? And their reactions and their responses to that. Um, oh, I spoke about this. When? On, when I spoke before Shavuos. 
I think so. It could I, be I you know, you, you, wrote you, the speech you wrote, for you. Yeah, no, I know. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah. I'm saying I remember uh, that. You, okay. That that um, he went to ghostwriter here, by the way. <laughs> well, for for speeches more than cookbooks. <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, that the the guy went to Shammai and he said, "Teach me the whole Torah." I'll write Galachas on one foot, right. and Shammai said, "Get out of here! That's a ridiculous request." And Hillel said, um, "Let's see if I can remember the words." Um, Madisani alach lechavrach lo tavid. Wait, wait, wait! You don't like? Don't do to your friend. And then I don't remember the the words of Midach the Gemara, Yerusha but. Which means the, everything else is details. You you'll learn it later. Right. So and and what the the obvious question, which is if I remember correctly, the question that you raised in that particular Torah. Well, that you raised <laughs> uh, is what do you mean? That's really all of Torah. Uh, Shabbos, uh, Tzitzis, Tfilin, you know, uh, Mezuzah. All of those are about you know interpersonal relationships. Well, as Rashi in his commentary on the Gemara there points out, the friend that we're talking about is God. And so, yes, all of Torah, all of Judaism is about understanding that the nature of Judaism is a relationship with God. And so treat him the way you would want to be treated. You would want someone to find out what it is that you want in life. So you find out what it is that he wants. He with a capital H in life. Right? Um, and that's the, the understanding of that Gemara. Okay. Ki Otsi Hashem es Yisrael mimitzrayim, that Hashem had taken the Jewish people out of Egypt. Which, you know, it's it's worth noting, I mean, again, if we've grown up with these stories, sometimes it, it doesn't quite strike us as powerfully at least this was certainly the case for me. But the idea of the Jews leaving Egypt, um, aside from the miraculous nature of their exit, you know, with 10 plagues and all of that, was really just profound. Um, as Rashi points out, you know, um, later on in this week's Parsha, that had never happened before. The idea that a small band of people would be able to escape a nation that was a world power at the time, right? Was just foreign to history. Right. And so Yisro, Moshe's father-in-law, took as Tzipora Eishas Moshe, Tzipora, Moshe's wife, Achar Shilucheha, after she had been sent. Now, that's a very obscure statement. What does that mean after she had been sent? So as Rasha explains, there's a piece of the story that's missing. If you go back into the Parsha, in the end of Parsha Shemos, when Moshe is returning from Midian back to Mitzrayim to finally redeem the people, he has his wife and children with him. But then they all of a sudden disappear from the story. So, I mean, until this point, you would have assumed, yeah, well, they're just not critical. It's not like they were going to come into the palace with him. Mm -hmm. You know, they're they're sitting at home somewhere, right? Um, They're just not critical players in the story. But actually, Rashi mentions the Medrash here that 
when Aaron came to greet Moshe, as you see in the Pesukim over there, when Aaron came to greet Moshe in his return, Aaron looked at Moshe's wife and children and said, what are they doing here? Moshe says, what do you mean? This is my wife. This is my kids. And Aaron said, do you really think this is the kind of place to be bringing your wife and kids? And Moshe accepted that and said, you know what? Maybe it's better if they go home. And so he sent her back home. Um, and that's why they don't appear in the story anymore, which is just a fascinating anecdote um, in this whole story. You know, um, kind of that interaction. I have so many questions. I have mm -hmm. to like process what you said. This exchange took place when and where? This is Moshe's returning from Midian, right? So Paro tries to kill Moshe and Moshe runs away. Right. He goes to Midian, right? Um, which is where he meets Yisro for the first time. Right. He doesn't meet Yisro initially. He actually meets Yisro's daughters, right? Including one young woman named Tsipora, right? <clears throat> and then he has the revelation where Hashem appears to him in the burning bush and tells him it's time for you to redeem the Jewish people, right? And so he takes his wife and kids after receiving permission from Yisro and heads down to Egypt, right? Okay. Um, and then on his way down, there's that whole episode where um, he almost dies, right? And Sipora has to prefer, perform emergency circumcision on her on her young son at the time. It's hard to fathom. Did they not teach this? <laughs> no, they in... did. They did. I just, I, I, I'm, I'm remembering all this as, as you're saying it, but I guess here's my big question about what mm -hmm. you just said. Was it like, so he, so he got to Mitzrayim with his family mm -hmm. and Aaron said, send them away. They don't belong here. And Moshe said, okay, good point. Uh, bye. See you later. And they left. Mm -hmm. Okay, so here's my question. Could any Jew individually leave as they wished? Or was it only so you're, because of who Moshe was? Well, first of all, they hadn't yet arrived in Mitzrayim. Okay. Um, but I think the, the question that you're raising is true about Aaron. How was Aaron just able to get out and say hi and greet him on the way down? I do have a guess. Mm -hmm. Is this related to the fact that the, the Levium exactly. were not slaves? Right. So Aaron did somewhat have free reign to do what he was going, whatever he wanted, so long as he wouldn't disturb the rest of the people, which is why when they come to the palace right after that, right, and Moshe starts talking about the, letting the people go, right? Paro doesn't just say, who do you think you are, right? You're a slave. He doesn't say that. He says, well, why are you stopping the people from working? In other words, I understand Don't why you're not browser. working. I understand why you're not working, but why are you stopping the rest of the people? I want to go back to something, though, because I think it's worth, it's worth mentioning. The idea of Kohen Midian. So the word Kohen usually is translated as priest, right? Okay. That's usually how it's translated. Um, there's a Pasuk in this week's Parsha that creates a little bit of a problematic, uh, a problem with that translation. 
And that is, we are told in this week's in this week's parsha that the Jewish people, with the giving of the Torah, are going to become mamlaches kohanim, right? A nation of what? A nation of priests. Um, so the the Rishonim, the commentaries on on Chumash, actually take two different approaches. Some, including Rashi, understand that the word kohen actually means royalty or nobleman. And that's why, for example, we find that the children of David are referred to as Kohanim, even though they weren't from the tribe of Levi, right? But they were royalty. That's also why your wife refers to us, yes, you know, herself as the daughter and wife of Kohen, yes. as Jewish royalty. Yes. <laughs> um, which would mean that when we're told that we are going to become a Mamlaches Kohanim, a nation of Kohanim, it means a nation of royalty, right? Which... When, you know, then the phrase is pretty self-explanatory, right? We will be a special nation. Um, however, if you understand the Pasuk, Mamlaches Kohanim, if you translate that in the way that the word Kohen usually is translated, priest, which is the way that most of the commentaries on this particular Pasuk, when we talk about Yisro being Kohen Midian, they say that it means that he was actually the priest in Midian which is part of what makes his journey so significant, right? Is he had been the, you know, it's like, you know, imagine the Pope were to convert, right? right. You know, um, he had been, and as we'll see, according to some commentaries later, he had tried out every different religion in the book, um, you know. And oh, really? He yes. did try everything else out before he settled on being a um, Jew? Yes, so it's we'll see. I don't know if we'll get there, but it says that Yisro says, "I now know that God is greater than all of the other gods." Oh, he had firsthand knowledge. He had firsthand knowledge, right? He had he had experienced that. Um, so, if we translate the word kohen as priest, then what does it mean to be a nation of priests? Priests have to minister to someone. Right? right. So who is our flock, so to speak, that the we world? are ministering? Yeah. Which would mean that that Pasuk is telling us, yeah, that Pasuk is telling us our responsibility to be, as you mentioned, or like a light unto the nations. We are meant to be spreading something. Right. Uh, not Judaism per se, because as we know, Judaism does not believe in proselytizing, right? In making other people Jewish, but there is something that we as Jews are meant to be spreading to the world, right? And that would be the meaning of that phrase, mamlaches kohanim, right? A nation of priests, meaning relative to the rest of the world. We are like, in the same way there is a Kohen, an Alevi, and a Yisrael within the people, within the Jewish people, there is a Kohen relative to the rest of the world, that is the entirety of the Jewish people. Baneha, um, and in the next verse we're told, he also took her two children. It's interesting that they're identified as her children and yeah, not his children. Um, so Rabbeinu Bachai doesn't really answer the question. He just says we oftentimes find that sons are identified as children of their mother, and daughters are identified as children of their father. Um, Dina Bas Yaakov, right? Dina right. is identified as the daughter of Yaakov. 
right? Dina Bito, Dina, his daughter. Um, which is interesting because if you think about it from a, I guess, from a psychological standpoint, that is oftentimes the case, right? So there's, you know, he's a mama's boy, right? right. And she's a daddy's girl. Right. <laughs> right. So it's interesting that, that, you know, we find that reflected in the text as well. Um, the two children, Asher Shem Ha'echad Gershom, the name of one of those children was Gershom, and he had been named that because Kiamar, because Moshe had said, Ger Ha'yisi Be'eretz I was a stranger in a foreign land. Which is, if I want to pause for a minute and consider, and I don't really know the answer to this question, but it's strange that now, of all times, we should be informed as to the name of Moshe's children. You would expect back in Parsha Shmos, when we are introduced to Moshe's children, right? That would have been a good time. That would have been a good time to tell us their names. But for some reason, it's here and also in the next one, Vishem Ha'echad Eliezer. And the name of one of those children was Eliezer. He named him Eliezer because, right, so Gershom is Gersham, right? I was a stranger there. Eliezer is Eli, my God. Elokeavi Be'ezri was my help. And he saved me from the sword of Paro. So it's interesting. And again, I don't know why um, it, it specifically here. And if anyone can give me an answer, I'm, I'm happy um, to hear it. Uh, why specifically here they are, um, they are, their names are given to us and the explanation of those names are given to us. So Vayavo Yisro Chosin Moshe. So Yisro, Moshe's father-in-law, came, Upanav Vishto, and his sons, Moshe's sons, and his wife, they came El Moshe to Moshe. El Hamibar to the desert. Asherhu Chonesham, that he was encamped there, Har Halokim, around the mountain of God. What is the mountain of God? Harsinai? Yes. Okay, so we have arrived at Harsinai. In fact, some understand that this is uh, an indicator as to when uh, Yisro arrived. They they were encamped around Harsinai for an entire year after the giving of the Torah, which would imply when we say that he was camped there, Mm -hmm. right, that that's referring to the time that they spent there for a while, right, not just they had just arrived there. Right. Um, so, and if you look back in Parsha's in Parsha's Shemos, when Moshe has the vision of the of the burning bush, it's referred to that area where he has that vision as Har Elohim, because that happened on Har Sinai, right? As Hashem says to him at the time, "You, when you go out, will worship me on this mountain." That happens on Har Sinai. Um, I want to note something that also might not have given a lot of thought to, but you're the Jewish people, right? You've just left Egypt. Where are you going? To Israel. You're going to Israel, right? Now, aside from, as we discussed, you know, in Parshas Bishalach, the circuitous route, 
But if you know anything about the geography, they are headed in completely the wrong direction if they're headed towards Harsinai. Sorry, Harsinai is modern day where? Okay, so this is a whole fascinating (laughs) discussion, right? Is Harsinai in what we call the Sinai Desert, right? Okay. Or is Harsinai actually potentially farther east and maybe even all the way in Saudi Arabia? Oh, okay. wow, that really is the wrong direction. They're, they're, no matter what, they're headed right, in the right. wrong direction. They're either, they're headed, headed, to the, they're either headed south, southeast, or, when they would or they're headed, north. you know, mostly east. They and should they, be headed north. Right, right. Right? Okay. So, why? Or to put this question a little bit differently, you would have expected, if you think about it for a minute, that they should go to Israel and receive the Torah in Israel. Right. Isn't that what makes sense? Yes. Right. Why go down somewhere completely different to Harsinai, you know, and receive the Torah as a completely almost independent event, right? And only then head to Israel. So the truth is, Chazal, our sages are bothered by this question, right? Except most people don't really understand what they're asking because our sages ask the question why was the torah given in the desert right. most people understand well why a desert this, of all I don't places the answer. right but i think that their question is why wasn't the torah given in eretz Yisrael? and it's not just me some of them for on on the gemara explain it that way okay right and i think that that's the much simpler understanding of the question okay. And the answer that Chazal give is fascinating. A number of different answers. One of which is that the Midbar, the desert, is a place that is open to anybody. Whereas Eretz Yisrael, Israel, is uniquely Jewish. It's the Jewish homeland. Sorry, guys. We've, we've been here. We've been here for thousands of years. And yes, it is our homeland. Right? It's the Jewish homeland. If Torah was given in Eretz Yisrael, you would have assumed that it is addressed uniquely to the Jewish people. But fascinatingly, Torah is not addressed uniquely to the Jewish people. It is addressed to the world at large. Wow. And we have two proofs of that. Number one, this, what Chazal are telling us, that the reason the Torah is given in the desert is because so that, you know, it's available to anybody. But number two, when the Jews cross over the Jordan, and we're getting back to say for Yehoshua again, mm-hmm. what do they do? They write the entire Torah, depending on how you understand what the entire Torah means, in 70 languages, and they plant it right at the border of Israel. Why would you do that? Unless what you're trying to say is, hey guys, here it is, right? No matter what nation you're from, it's there in one of your languages, Right? It's available to you. Torah Shabal Peh, the oral Torah, is a uniquely Jewish phenomenon. But Torah Shabbatav, the written Torah, is not unique to the Jews, meaning it's not given uniquely to the Jews. It was given to us, but it's given to be accessible to anybody. Right? And that's why the Torah is given in the desert, which brings us 
right back to the concept of mamlachas kohanim, which we were discussing a moment ago. Right, right. Right? Whatever it is that we understand, that we learn, that we glean from Torah, I'll put it this way. Rambam says something fascinating. You know, Rambam, without getting into Rambam's whole biography and, and life story, right? Rambam wrote the Mishnah Torah, also known as the Yara Chazaka, 14 volumes, which is, in, according to him, he writes this in the introduction, incorporates the entirety of Torah Shabbat, the entirety of the Oral Torah. Wow. Okay. okay. Before writing it, he decided to take a little, you know, minor exercise and enumerate what the 613 mitzvos are. Right. Because when you read his introduction to Rambam, you understand because he, the structure of his book, Mishnah Torah, is built around the 613 mitzvos. That's how he organized it. So he first had to identify what are those 613 mitzvahs. And that's where we have something called the Sefer HaMitzvos of the Rambam, the Rambam's book of mitzvahs, where he enumerates what those 613 mitzvahs are. And as I heard Rav Asher Weiss once put it, it's the only book he knows of where the introduction is longer than the book itself. Because in the introduction, he lays out the principles by which he decided what is and what is not included in the 613 mitzvahs, which creates a whole firestorm of discussion, um, including Ramban, Nachmanides, wrote, wrote uh, footnotes on the Sefer mitzvahs in reaction to some of those principles. I have a lot of questions about this also, but I'm trying to stay focused So, for once. <laughs> in that Sefer mitzvahs, <clears throat> right in the very beginning, he enumerates, <clears throat> the, he's enumerating the different mitzvahs, and one of the mitzvahs that he enumerates is the mitzvah of Avas Hashem, love of God. And in identifying and defining that mitzvah, Rambam says something fascinating. Rambam says part of the mitzvah of Avas Hashem, of loving God, is to spread his word. Wow. And he explains it. I'm, I'm, I'm explaining his explanation, but in the following way, right? Imagine you found a treasure that you could share with everybody equally and you would lose nothing of it. Right? So, you know, in, in game theory, they talk about, you know, zero-sum games versus non-zero-sum games, right? Games where if I have something, you don't have it, whereas versus games where if I have something, you could also have it, right? So wisdom is an example of a non-zero-sum quantity, Right? Um, the fact that I have wisdom doesn't take away from the fact that you have wisdom, right? So imagine you found something that you could share equally with people and still retain it. And it's something amazing. Would you share it? Of course you would. Yeah, I guess. So if Judaism or your relationship with God, if you are in love with God, now obviously in human relationships, this doesn't work. Right? You don't believe in polygamy, right? So you can't share relationships with other people because by definition, being that we are human and limited, we can't equally divide our attention between different people, 
right? Whatever is given to one is taken away from the other. But God is not like that, right? God has no attention deficit, right? <laughs> he is able I'm to like- give attention to all of us equally in an infinite amount. If your relationship with God is really significant, if you really love God, wouldn't you want other people to have that too? Yeah. Right. And so Rambam says part of the mitzvah of Avas Hashem, of loving God, is if you really love God, you will want to share Him with the world. Right. And that's how Rambam understands what Avraham Avinu was doing. Avraham Avinu, when he was spreading, right, the idea of God, it wasn't because, you know, he was some sort of, you know, on a mission, I'm going to convert the world. No, he loved God. That's how HaKadosh Baruch Hu describes him in the Navi, Avraham Ohavi, Avraham, the one who loves me, or my lover, however you want to translate that. Right? So, because he loved him, he wanted to spread the idea of him to others. Wow. Right? Think about that for a minute. And I'm, I want to close with, with this idea, because we mentioned that I want to come back to it. The idea that sometimes it takes people from the outside for us to appreciate what we have. Right? Later on in Parshas Baloscha, when Yisro, who there is identified by the name Chovav, which is one of his multiple names, according to Rashi, mm-hmm. is going to go home. Moshe asks him to stick around. And Moshe says to him, which there are different ways of translating, but one way, and I think the simplest way of translating it, or I don't know if it's the simplest, but it's a, it's a profound way of translating it, is that Moshe tells Yisro, you have provided us with eyes. You have given us perspective. Because Yisro, coming from the outside, oftentimes is able to see the beauty in a way that people who are completely enveloped in it don't. We who have grown up with it oftentimes fail to see its beauty because we know nothing else. And then along comes someone from the outside, right? And is so enamored with Judaism that it reminds us of the beauty of it, right? I think this is one of the, I guess, benefits that I grew up with. Um, Obviously, um, growing up in, I grew up, well, for those of you who don't know, (laughs) I grew up in a Kirov environment. My father is, you know, the rabbi of a Kirov shul, has been since I was born. Since before you were born. Since before I was born. To be specific. So I grew up in that environment. And there are a lot of discussions for and against, and I don't want to get into that whole discussion. I just want to point out the following. I remember when I was, I think I was 15. So here I am, full day in high school, yeshiva, right? And there was one of the people in the shul who asked me if I could come and practice his kriya with him on Shabbos afternoons. Kriya meaning Hebrew reading Hebrew or specifically reading. leaning? Hebrew reading, not leaning. And I remember sitting there, we were reading Pirkei Avos, watching this, he was probably in his 40s at the time, this 40-year-old man break his teeth on reading Hebrew and thinking to myself, wow, right? he really wants this. 
I mean, think about the discussion we had this morning, right? How many people at a later stage in their life are willing to say, you know what? My Hebrew reading is not good enough. I'm going to spend hours and hours on end practicing so that I improve my Hebrew reading, right? Yet that's what this person was doing, right? Wow. It's pretty amazing. And that, I think, personifies the, what I'm talking about. The benefit of being around people like that is they make you realize the value of what it is that you have. Um. So let's do a quick review okay. since the time has come, the walrus <laughs> said. The time has come for us to wrap it up. If you insist. <laughs> so what have we seen? We saw the idea of Yisro, what it is that Yisro heard in terms of the splitting of the Yamsuf and the War of Amalek, why the War of Amalek was so significant, because Yisro realized that if we don't capitalize on inspiration, we end up denying its existence. We saw the idea of the stress of Moshe in the beginning of this Parsha, separate from the Jewish people, and Yisro's relationship with him. And how the Gemara in Masechah Shabbos with Hillel tells us very much that the nature of Judaism is about relationships. And oftentimes, what brings a person to Judaism is their relationships not necessarily directly with God initially, but with the people in Judaism, which led us to this idea of Or Lagoyim, our responsibility as a Mamlachas Kohenim, which we were translating as a nation of priests, our responsibility to shine light to the world around us, right? And finally, the inverse of that, which is that sometimes it takes people from the outside, like a Yisro or like a Rus, to teach us the value of what it is that we have. And so that's why they are so critically the introduction to the giving of Torah, because oftentimes we who have lived with it our whole lives forget its beauty, its value. And it takes someone from the outside to remind us why we're doing what we're doing and to remind us to choose to do what we are doing. Wow. Thank you so much.